Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver Radio Show an author, a journalist, a rally driver, uh, a man who in many ways does exactly what I do, but just for a change, he's on the receiving end. Uh, Peter Barker, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a very great pleasure to be here. Now, the interesting thing is, a lot of people who are, shall we say, involved in racing and rallying came about it purely by chance. A previous guest, uh, Carsten LeBlanc, got into racing uh, both modern Aston Martins and classic cars by seeing uh, the photograph of his dentist's Aston Martin on the wall. I got into it by surely a, a purely chance meeting with somebody. And you seem to get into it in your 20s by reading three books. The Seven Year Rich by Marcus Chambers. Um, International Rallying by the legendary Stuart Turner and Rally Navigation by Martin Holmes. Peter, how did all how did all this come about? Where did where did three books turn into, shall we say, a very, very illustrious career? Well, Mark, I have to go back a little bit further, another ten years back, when I was about ten years old, and uh, my father, who was a doctor, took the whole family from England, uh, where we lived in the Midlands, Worcestershire. Uh, to Uganda in Africa for three years because he had a, a contract to do some medical research there. And uh, the very first year we were there, 1970, a rally took place in the capital, Kampala, Uganda, and uh, he took me down to see it. It was the start of the East African Safari Rally. And uh, I was thrilled to bits. I saw these these bright reds, uh, in those days, Datsuns were the things to have, Datsuns and Escorts. Um, the Datsun uh, 1600s, uh, Treble S and the 240Z came along slightly later and uh, I saw my heroes in these cars, wonderful rally drivers who'd, who'd uh, grown up on Mini Coopers and other vehicles, suddenly they were in these Japanese cars and they were belting along roads, just much faster than my poor old dad could drive so I was smitten absolutely smitten by this and, and I remembered the names of the people and looked them up and found out about their history um, and then you're right, when I was a university student, age 20, I, I I think I got Rally Navigation by Martin Holmes out of the library um, because I was interested in maps and map reading and uh, that looked pretty fascinating. Uh, so in 1981 I passed my driving test at, uh, just about as soon as I could and in 1982 I borrowed £300 off my then girlfriend, poor woman, and uh, <laughs> looked in the local paper in Southampton area where I lived and there was a a 1967 Mini Cooper for sale. So I bought that, and, and uh, you know the rest is history. Really, that that started me off on road rallies, and, and I think the very first rally I ever did, I drove, and I finished plum last because uh, I didn't really realise how important the navigator was, and the navigator was a novice as well. Then I switched to navigating, 
and I did that for a number of years, and, and then driving. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how it got started. I mean, in many ways, you speak to a lot of rally drivers, uh, and navigation is their first step into it. I've tried navigation uh, for one driver on two occasions, and uh, he always said to me, there will never be a third attempt at this. I... I <laughs> I see. I've always said, it's a strange thing to say, I sit in the co-driver's seat, or I used to do on the two occasions, look out, I didn't look at the notes because I always used to say, I want to know what I'm hurtling towards. Yes. Um, I have been able to do the odd one on tulips. Tulips are easy to follow, and it's, yeah. it's, it's turn left, turn right, straight on at a set distance. Yeah. That I can just about manage, but true navigation is an out-and-out -out art form. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that the great navigators back in the day, Henry Lydon and others, were very short-sighted. <laughs> so, I mean, Henry could barely see beyond the windscreen. So when he was sitting next to Tino Mackinan or Rano Alton and, and they were hurtling towards, as you say, rocks and the scenery, he just couldn't see it. All he could feel was the movement of car through his bottom, and yeah. that was enough to keep him going. So if you ever look at pictures of, you know, the... the top drivers back in the day the co-driver always had their head down they were just weren't looking um and to some extent that translates into historic rallies because we we were using the same cars and and the same thing applied my long-term co-driver and great friend willie cave um has perfectly good vision but he deliberately wears glasses whilst co-driving that allow him to see sorry navigating which allow him to see the maps and and, and the notes and not really out of the car very much because he doesn't need to yeah uh, I mean, one of the great co-drivers of the 60s, of course, lives quite near to me, Mike Woods, who was Tony Foles' oh, co-driver. Yes, indeed. Great man. And yes. The one thing I've always found about co-drivers, they tend to be, shall we say, a very unique people. They're, some of the times they're actually quite dry about matters, but they are a very yeah. unique type of person as a co-driver. I personally have always found. Yes, indeed, I agree. I think they have to be very stoic. Uh, long-suffering people, very resourceful, and whilst the driver's, you know, doing his or her nut, trying to get the car around the next bend at the maximum speed, they have to be thinking ahead. There's, there's a lot of car management involved, as well as the, and people management, as well as, well as the the actual navigation and the, uh, and the keeping the car on the road at speed. It's a very complicated job. I was going to say because besides actually reading the maps and calling the directions, etc. The co-driver's job is, in many ways, is managerial. The driver is there to drive. The co-driver does literally everything else. Indeed, indeed. And uh, the best co-drivers also manage their drivers. Uh, if I may be permitted to tell you one anecdote, uh, the very first Monte Carlo rally, historic rally I ever did, and I've done 14 now, was with Willie Cave, whom I mentioned, and we were driving uh, my Mini Cooper up the Col de Chirini, a very famous stage in a mythical Col de Chirini. First time I'd ever been up there in anger. I was doing my best. I'd done lots of rallies in England, some of them with Willie, and I, I thought I was doing pretty well, you know, sort of bouncing between the snowbanks and skidding across the road and doing everything you can in a one-litre Mini. <laughs> anyway, it became obvious we were falling behind the time we should be achieving, because on that rally you have to achieve a set speed all the time. You have to be on a particular second as you climb up the hill. And we were falling back, and it was going you know, 10 seconds late, then it was... 20 seconds late, then it was 30 seconds late. Anyway, so Willie turned to me as I was hurtling between the snowbanks and the little cars screaming along on his tiny studded tyres. He said, Peter, I said, yes, Willie, as I, was, as I was driving hard. He said, you can go faster if you like. And this was enough to really upset me. 
and, and make me angry, which is just what he wanted me to do. And so I found a little bit more speed, and we started to take the time back, and we went back. <laughs> 15 seconds, 10 seconds. And by the time we got to the top of the Chirili, where he knew the timing point was, we were on time. And that is just man management. That's just how to, you know, get the best out of your driver. Yeah. Because, I mean, that was one of the things when I co-drove. I was told, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, and make sure this is there. And you think to yourself, what the hell's this got to do with reading maps? But well, very little, yes. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, a rally is a, a crew is a team. Um, and, and Brighter and more experienced people like me have pointed out there's a there's a four-way split, the driver, the co-driver, the car, and the support team. And all of those things have to be in perfect form to win a rally. Um, and... You know, it's a very complicated effort. Because, I mean, the other thing was, the term co-driver literally means that. I don't know if it actually happens in modern rallying, but back back then as such, the co-driver many times will drive between the special stages and allow the driver yes. to rest. I don't think it happens these days. I don't think so. I mean, these days rallies are more like sprints. Uh, you know, it's office hours, there's the very limited night running in the certainly in the, in the top flight of rallies. But back in the day where rallies went on for five days and Nights. I mean, the co-driver had to drive, but the poor driver couldn't drive all that distance. So, yeah, you had to be a competent driver as well as everything else, uh, which makes it even more impressive, frankly. Now, I mean, your uh, your career as such is, was Mini Cooper based, and is Mini Cooper based, uh, because at some point we will move on to your book, The Mini Cooper, 1961 to 2000. But uh, you now drive, uh, shall we say, what is potentially a far more comfortable Triumph 2000, but you still do take part in all the big classic, well, they're now classic rallies, they are, they were the rallies back, back in the day as such. Yes, indeed. Well, when I first started, the Mini was a cheap car. Even the Mini Cooper wasn't that expensive back in the day, and we're talking 40 years ago now. Um, parts were you know, readily available. And then when historic rallying came along in the early 90s, I, I embraced that um, with a will, and a friend of mine and I, Nigel Chetwind, we prepared a car specifically for rallying a Mini Cooper. I bought a pretty clapped-out Mini Cooper, and we prepared it. Uh, and it was just a great car. It was for, for the national rallies at the time. It was great. And, and yes, we did many of the. As time went on, I did many of the um, classic events: the Targa Rusticana, the Rally Bristow. Um, I did the RAC um, Historic Rally a couple of times, which was a stage event, but essentially the same car. Um, just put a cage in, and you know, found some muddy mud coping tyres and a stump guard, and off we went. So the, the little mini did brilliantly, um, and it lasted me until. Two 2008, when it became so valuable this particular car, because it had a, and had an X-Works registration number, yeah, uh, that I sold it, uh, bought another Mini for a few years, and, and then finally in 2012 I thought that's it. I've really gone as far as I can with the Mini, um, and I took a break for six years. I went and lived and worked abroad, uh, but when I came back to Britain, I was casting around for a different vehicle, and that's when I got into Triumph. Um, I wanted a break. I wanted to move on from minis. I just didn't think there was much point in repeating history. So, um, you know, now in my, I'm now 60 years old, and in my old age, the Triumph 2000 is extremely comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I can, uh, you know, I can sit there in comfort, and the suspension works, and it doesn't jar my backbone, and I don't break my teeth and bite through my tongue every time I go over a bump. The, the, uh, I mean, the Mini Cooper is a young man's and young woman's car. I have to say. Um, I know there are there are very eminent drivers who stick with them, but they are pretty punishing things in their full, you know, race or rally tune form. Uh, and I decided to move on. 
rather than make a fool of myself and, and not be as good as I used to. <laughs> now, one of the big rallies you've just finished doing, uh, and it was a, a, f- a good few weeks ago now, was Le Jog, which is Land's End to John O'Groats. Uh, I mean, that has got to be one of the most arduous rallies, what you might call modern classic rallies, going anywhere. I mean, just talk us through it. What exactly is Le Jog? Well, it's it's actually a trial, not a rally. Um, although it's loosely termed a rally, and a rally is simply a, a, a gathering of motor cars. It's a trial in the sense that cars are pitched against other cars, uh, historic cars of the same um, engine capacity and roughly manufacturing period. So I was in uh, class six with my Triumph 2000 with my good friend Rolf Pellini as a navigator, excellent navigator, uh, and we were up against other vehicles of about the same age, Volvos, uh, and I think there was a there was an Escort in Mexico and one or two other cars. But it was um, it's a really a trial of reliability. Now that particular rally, um, or sorry, trials I should call it, starts at Lands End as you quite rightly say, and ends at John O'Groats four days later. Uh, there are two nights without sleep, effectively. There's a short break for a few hours sleep after the first night and then the second night is out of bed completely sorry he's in bed completely and then the third night he's just continuous day night day uh, it's it's incredibly arduous by the time you get to northern scotland as a driver you are just exhausted and, and that that last the, the later part of that last night was very tough this time very very cold freezing weather sheet ice across the road it was almost impossible to keep the car on the road, let alone keep to the time. Uh, and some of my competitors did extremely well to, you know, to, to get anywhere near the right time. I know uh, you. Co- I know you commented. I know you commented that your co-driver at one point was out of the car, pushing against the left-hand side to actually stop it sliding off the road. Indeed. Well, we came to a triangle in, in the road, which we had to go round in true British fashion. You know, three, two sides of a, of a what we call a triangle here in England, and and. The the car just didn't want to know about it. I mean, I turned into the triangle and it just started spinning. And then, of course, it was it was sliding towards the outside of the road, which was a tremendous drop off this mountainside. <laughs> Rolf, bless him, being six foot large sort of Italian gentleman, leapt out the car and sort of held it on the road and pushed it just enough that eventually the back wheels found some grip and it you know, shot off up the road again uh, to a point where he could get back in. Yeah. But I mean, if he hadn't done that, I'm, we would have just slid straight off the road. There was no stopping it. Now, the one thing the jog is known about, and this year it doesn't seem to have been as bad, is, uh, shall we say, the attrition rate, not only on the crews but on the cars. But I think this year has been, or shall we say, last year as it is now, uh, as was slightly kinder on the cars but immeasurably more demanding on the navigators. I agree, yes. There was lots of... Um navigational work to be done uh, the, the night section through Wales was very tricky to find all the all the right slots um, or road junctions and the, the again some of the other sections were, were very difficult up in uh, I think you and I met um, just before the the section over um, the Lancashire Moors which was a fantastic Wonderful. Yeah, you, you, you and I, you and I met at uh, Grimsor, which is just That's outside right. Preston, where yes. I remember you saying civilization, because it was one of the few occasions that the route brings you into, shall we say, more densely populated areas, and you get the chance to go to the toilet and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely, well put. I mean, I think we had all of 
10 minutes in, in, in the particular uh, public house we met you in, but uh, that seemed like 10 minutes of civilization after lots of time out in the wilds. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic event, uh, just a wonderful event, the jog. It's, it's um, an epic, and it attracts crews from all over Europe, in fact, all over the world, because it's so hard. It, it, you know, if you complete a jogging, well, you're very proud of yourself. You mentioned the attrition rate on vehicles. I think out of the 70 cars that started, 65 finished, which is a very high number. Yeah. Um, I can only say that the conditions were dreadful. I mean, it's, it's really impressive that people can prepare their cars well enough to do that. And some of the cars were just about standard. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there was a good sound of car prep and, and people kept them running. But yes, it was, it was fearsome navigation, really difficult. Now, you mentioned the cars, and that's the one interesting thing about classic rallying. I mean, yours is a prepared car, but we had uh, a Citroën 2CV. There was, surprisingly, a, a Bristol 411, which is probably one of the most unlikely rally cars you will ever encounter. Volvo Amazons, uh, Porsche, you can never do a classic rally without a, a few Porsches around the place, but there was a 928, which I personally wouldn't consider to be... It wouldn't be my first choice in rally car. But in classic rallying, as you just said, there is an enormous cross-section. There's a beautiful old Peugeot, 4 Series Peugeot. Um, classic rallying does not mean that you have to have an X-Works car as such, or X-Works style preparation. You can do it in virtually anything. Yes, absolutely. I mean, anything of the right period, and as you say, some quite unlikely vehicles taped to the road. Um, I mean, a car as valuable as a Bristol over some of those roads in Wales, I mean, that would just be pure pain for me because you're doing so much damage to the car yeah. down those lanes. Um, I, I'm not sure whether the Bristol finished, but it, it certainly wouldn't have been my f choice of car simply because it's easily damaged and very, very expensive to repair. <laughs> so generally people stick to the kind of, I mean, not everybody you know has a Porsche or an Escort. They are the favourites because they were brilliant rally cars back in their day and they still are. Um, but it's nice to see a bit of variety. I mean, I always get um, compliments on the Triumph 2000 because there's relatively few of them. There's only a few, three that I know of running in Britain. There's a few on the continent. Um, so it's nice to turn up in something different. And actually, it does get you an entry in some of the more prestigious events yeah. because, of its, because of its unusual nature. But actually, that, that's part of the fun. Um, we were following two Italians uh, who'd never done a rally before in their lives, and they were driving an Alfa Romeo GTV, I think it was. Um, and this thing looked as it comes straight off the streets in Milan. It had zero preparation. <laughs> I was astonished to see it at the end, Mark. I really wouldn't have bet money on it lasting, but it did. Incredible. But no, and but you mentioned like your triumph. I mean, back in the day, without trying to, without overusing what is now a hackneyed uh, expression, they were quite. They were a common rally car, weren't they? I mean, the factories rallied these. When Triumph rallied, it used its saloons and its sports cars. There was nothing unusual about seeing any Triumph competing. No, absolutely not. It was a normal part of promotion for for Britain's motor manufacturers if you think of you know bmc roots uh, standard triumph ford they all uh, entered rallies with their with their up-to-date products as a way of promoting their their toughness and durability to go back to the triumph 2000 it was a very good long distance car which is why i bought it to do things like the jogging uh, roy fiddler actually won the 1966 british rally championship in one um, so he did you know small events down the lanes and was fast enough uh, with his co-driver, I think it was called Alan Jones, to um, to beat everybody, including all the, the works cars of the day and even the, the semi-works drivers. So th 
they've 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 had a, a minor career in rallying, but they're very good long distance cars. And uh, Triumph is a very charismatic brand to be driving. Uh, the thing about the jog is, though, of course, you have times to keep, etc. Classic rallying, unless you're doing things like the Roger Albert Clark, which is still a proper rally for want of a better description. A lot of the classic rallies are not speed events anymore, are they? They can't be on the public roads. I mean, the days of speed events on the public road died a long time ago, back in the 60s, probably with the Gulf London rally in this country, um, which was dangerously fast, frankly. And on the continents of Europe, um, things like the Liège, Rome, Liège, the, the French Alpine rally, which had incredibly high average speeds on open public roads, just fell foul of tourism. So the short answer to your question is no. I did two years of stage rallying, uh, about the turn of the century, um, with Hugh Wiley as a co-driver and uh, enjoyed it but there was little point in pedalling a one litre mini um, you know you're, you're going to be at the back whatever you do but it was it was good experience and, and good ex good driving technique experience now as we move on a little I mean you've just written a book on what are technically still your favourite rally cars the Mini Cooper 1961 to 2000 Though a proper Mini Cooper is now, as you said, the reason you stopped with yours was it suddenly became staggeringly valuable. The, the, the passion for the Mini Cooper, what I refer to as the real Mini Cooper, uh, has never abated, has it? I mean, these little cars designed by Sir Isigonis still capture the imagination, be it a Cooper or an ordinary Mini. Absolutely, and actually the humble minis, the 850s and the, and the little shopping varieties that many of us will remember our parents and, and relatives driving back in the day are now becoming very valuable indeed. They're just great cars. I mean, my, my day job is a, uh, is a professor of design in, in uh, Plymouth College of Arts in the southwest of England, and I can tell you as a professional that the design of the original mini is just superb. It is an object lesson in how to design a small car. Uh, okay, it's a long time ago now, 60 plus years that it came out, but it's a fabulous piece of design that still works well today. Only yesterday I saw one on the road, little old lady going to her local store. Absolutely looks fine, drives as well as it ever did, perfectly good for going shopping. And they're incredible, a beta Cooper or a little eight basic 850, they are incredible fun to drive, aren't they? Oh, brilliant, they're like go-karts, uh, particularly if you hot up the engine, you've got lots of power. I mean, one of the problems we came up with my rallying version, uh, which was registered 977ARX, was that it, it, we began to get so much power through the front wheels, it was becoming undrivable. I think we hit 130 horsepower <laughs> by the end of it on, on uh, split Webers and limited slip differential at Salisbury Diff, if you've ever driven one. I mean, it was verging on undrivable. Yeah. It was getting dangerous. <laughs> Now, the, I mean, what tempted you to write the book? Because I'm not being funny, there, there's no shortage of books on minis, as I will testify, because on the shelves behind me, I have about six of them. Well, what got me going was that um, I was commissioned back in 1999 by Monty Watkins, who was then uh, editor of Mini World magazine, and he pointed out that some of the uh, people from the BMC Works team were beginning to... to become ill and elderly and sick and a few of them had already passed away and it was would be a good idea if we went round and we did in-depth interviews with everybody so I started with the mechanics and the drivers and the navigators and then I kind of widened my grasp and in the end over a period of 10 years I interviewed 50 people who were associated with the Mini Cooper and the Mini and its development and I sat there and these interviews were published in, in, in the periodically in the magazine and they were very great but I had 
had all this information and I thought this would make a great basis for a book because not only you know, have I got my own experience with minis but I, I've now got quotes from people directly first hand some of you are now dead so I sat down about a couple of years ago uh, with the encouragement of a friend who's a journalist and, and started to put it together and it just fell together so easily because I could just literally reach out across my living room and pull a quote off the shelf and there you've got real gold I didn't have to repeat the tales that other people have been telling some of them completely incorrect yeah um, and I'm, you know I didn't have to go to second hand information all the time which was just great I was going to say, that's one of the things, you mentioned it there, I think one of the things you've got to be careful of, because I used to do a lot of writing, not as much anymore, but it's separating fact from fiction, because certain cars like Mini Coopers, myths start, and the myths, the myths are told that many times, they become truth, and I suppose the problem is sifting out the myths. It's extremely difficult, uh, and I know my fellow writers also uh, uh, found, found that it is very hard to separate myth from um, fact, particularly as Isagonis uh, used to indulge himself in myth making yeah. and then he would believe his own myths and <laughs> you know it just became kind of very difficult to sort out what was true and what was false. But I have to say um, uh, Isagonis' biographer Gillian Barsley did a tremendous job in, in trying to get to the truth about the man from his records Yeah, uh, and she was very helpful to me. She gave me a long interview and, and encouraged me in my own book writing and other people as well. I should say that I did work, uh, when I first left college, I, I spent a year working for Alex Moulton, who was the suspension genius behind the Mini, the original Mini. Yeah. And it, he told me many things, again, firsthand, that were very, very useful and, and gave me introductions to other people. So I tried hard in that book not to put anything in I couldn't verify. Um, and oh, I don't suppose it's perfect. It's, it's as good as anybody could make it, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, just 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 a slightly sidetrack, I once wrote a very large article on the Porsche 959, and those 4,000 words took such generating, it was incredible, because there are so many non-fabricated stories about the 959 that it, it becomes nigh on impossible. I was even fortunate enough to talk to uh, such as Jürgen Barth and other people at the Porsche factory who laughed when I told them some of the facts that I'd been given. And I suppose yeah. that, that's the same thing with the Minis, it's trying to work out... Are, are you being? Are you getting the truth, or are you getting, uh, shall we say, a very interesting, long-standing fantasy about it all? Well, indeed. I mean, it's not really the technical side of the car. It's, it's because that's very well known and well documented, and, and you know, the BMC put out their own publications uh, way back, which are very useful as, as ground. It's more the stories that go with uh, legends that go with people. And I've had to, I've had to check and triangulate and, and speak to all sorts of people to get. What I believe to be the truth, there are still some legends which will probably die with people. There's a, thing, there's a few things that, um, I don't want to repeat on air, but are contentious to say the least. <laughs> but the, the truth may never come out because, you know, they're just, there's good reason to hide it, frankly. Yeah. Now, the only thing you do, you write for one of the uh, big historic classic rallying magazines, do you not, sir? I do, yes. Well, I write, uh, I write for the Triumph Car uh, magazines, uh, but I also write for retrospeed.com which is a wonderful website run by Peter Baker and his wife Lynn um, Peter is a long-standing um, associate uh, we, 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 I recall doing the Welsh rally against him one year and he kept getting my points and I kept getting his points because the results team could not distinguish us me being called Peter Barker and he being called Peter Baker uh, I think it came to a head when 
when I got his hotel bill. <laughs> anyway, I confronted this gentleman who laughed. Just out of interest, who was the more who was the more extravagant? <laughs> well, he's much more extravagant. He, he likes fine wine and, and hotels that I can't afford. Uh, I always tell him I'm the better rally driver because I've had more success. But you know, it's a moot point. Anyway, he's a great friend, and I like him very much. And we deliberately try and get people to confuse us because it amuses us. But uh, yeah, I write for his website, and I. I just put up a recently put up an article on the jog, and, and if the Monte Carlo historic rally goes ahead, um, we'll we'll put up something on that. So yeah, it's a great pleasure to keep writing. I just do it because I like it. I mean, are you expecting the, uh, the the classic Monte Carlo to go ahead? Well, as of today, and we are recording this in 2021. Um, it doesn't look good. The French government have banned all all visitors to France from Britain uh, because of the resurgence of covid it, it, there's a whole month to go yet um we'll see but I, I it is looking not very good i have to say the automobile club of monaco last year were very good and when they when it became obvious they couldn't run the event for reasons of covid they refunded all of the entry fees to all the competitors which was very generous of them because they must have incurred costs um and I, I, maybe they will be able to do the same again to british competitors i don't know it's it's not a good time for the Rally Monte Carlo historic at the moment, which is a pity because it's a fabulous event. Simply the biggest festival of uh, classic rallying I've ever been involved in. Now, whilst the great unknown continues, and by that I mean uh, what I call the old kung fu flu, would you anticipate that more classic rallies will be created within the UK? I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, there's Tim Nash's Lombard series, which is going from strength to strength. There's Le Jog, which we hope will continue, even if it can only have UK entrance. Are you anticipating any increase in classic rallying within the UK? Well, it's a good question. Now, that is a very good question, Mark. I, I think um, it's possible if organisers such as uh, Hero ERA, who organise the jog, if they um, find that they really are having difficulty in putting on rallies uh, on the continent of Europe, I'm sure they will look again at the British Isles and see if they can squeeze a few more events in. Um, and local motor clubs might be tempted to do such a thing because there's a such a pressure of interest. We've got so many great cars and great marks of cars here in Britain and a long history of you know, rallying classic and historic and so on. Um, I think there's a possibility that there will. Britain's a wonderful place for rallies. The only problem is it's so overcrowded. <laughs> and there are, um, let's say there are persons uh, around who um, have moved away from the metropolis and, and wish the countryside to be in some sort of medieval state. So that's yes. that keen on a lot of old cars whizzing part of the night uh, but those people apart we, we hope that we can uh, you know, we can keep up the scene and develop it i mean my knowledge of classic rallying is is nowhere near as in-depth as yours what what british or english or uk rallies that have long since become defunct could be brought back well, I think the Targa Rusticana has to stand out. It was run by the Oxford uh, University Motor Drivers Club and for a long time in the 90s and early 2000s was run by pretty much the original team who, who ran it in the 1960s and early 70s, I believe. Now, those people are, some of them are no longer with us and, and, and you know they've, they've got on in years now, but it could easily be revived by a new generation and it was a superb event. It, it used tracks in Wales and local knowledge, um, and so long as the, the organisers respect the, the local car clubs in Wales and cooperate with them, I 
think it could be um, a wonderful event again. There was also the, uh, I keep going about Wales, but it's a great place to go for rallies. Well, it, 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 it's more of a religion in Wales, is uh, rallying, than a, a sport or a pastime. It is, indeed. Um, there was a wonderful guy called Dennis Cardell who passed away a few years ago, and uh, he organised the Welsh Rally Retrospective and was really a, a, a one-man engine for classic rallying in Wales. Again, these things could be brought back. Um, there are still people there who, who know their stuff. Kenny Owen, who used to run the Lombard Rally years ago, um, uh, yeah, it's possible. It's certainly possible. Now, if somebody wanted to get into classic rallying, though rallying per se and motorsport per se are not cheap, what would you say would be the perfect entry-level classic rally car? Oh, that's very difficult because times move on. We're, we're now in a situation where you can enter 1980s cars in classic rallies, which you couldn't when I started. Um, so I would have a look at, you know, hatchbacks of the early 80s. Um, I know some of them have become quite expensive, but there were some very good little rally cars. A Tolbert Samba is a great car. Yes. Um, if we ever get to 90s cars, a Vauxhall Nova, you know, fantastic little car, brilliant handling. The problem, is, the problem is, when was the last time you saw a Nova? Somebody asked me that the other day. I said, well, Vauxhall no and they said, more or less said, I can't remember seeing one. I said, I'll hold my hand up. I can't remember seeing one of late. No, I mean, a lot of them rotted away, of course, and they were cheap cars, you know, not to be, not to be maintained particularly well. But, you know, anything like that, as time goes on, there's going to be some small uh, and, and very agile cars with great little overhead cam engines, um, as was the fashion in those days. Anything from the 1980s, the 1990s as it comes along, and then maybe one day you'll be able to enter cars from the early 2000s. So I would pick something small and agile. Britain's not that big. You don't, unless you do a job or a very long distance event, you don't need a big car. And they're just great on the tests and down the lanes, round the cones. You can have a lot of fun for not that much outlay. Right. Now, before you go, uh, if somebody wants to get a copy of your book, Mini Cooper, 1961-2000, how do they go on or how do they go about getting themselves a copy of this? Well, first of all, I'd go onto the publisher's website. Uh, it's Amberley Books, if you just um, use your favourite search engine and find them. Um, I don't have the web address, or do I? Let me have a quick look inside the book. Maybe it's there. It's doesn't seem to be. Anyway, it's Amberley Books. Have a look for them. Uh, you'll find them. Uh, buy it from them. Failing that, you can go to, um, of course, your favourite book selling agencies online. Um, I'm told they're slightly slower to supply than the, the publishers because the publishers have stock and, and um, the, the usual suspects on the internet have to buy stock. They don't hold a lot of stock of the book as obscure as this. But it has sold well. Um, I think to them to this moment I've sold 200 copies, which is not bad for a small book, um, as you say, in a crowded market. And uh, certainly people should be able to get hold of it from the publishers or from the major suppliers. They're listed online. It, it's uh, at the time of broadcasting around £15 a copy. And, uh, which, which I would say, sir, given the price of some books these days, is ex is couldn't even be described as exceedingly reasonable. That is, shall we say, a gift given the given given some of the prices I pay for some books that I have. Well, if I told you, Mark, it took ten years of research to went into that book, and, and forty years of mini ownership. A great deal of my life has gone into that tiny <laughs> book. So it's it's pretty dense. It's like a little fruitcake, but there's a lot in there for your fifteen quid. 
Peter Barker, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much. As I said, it was just a, a second chance encounter at uh, the Plowing at Grimsow, and I thought, I know that face, uh, that you uh, very kindly agreed to join me on the radio show. But once again, Peter Barker, thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver radio show. It's been a great pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. beaten on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk